Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin looking at verse 3. For those of you joining us today, we have begun a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we've talked about the history and background of this first New Testament church and we first century New Testament church. And we've also uh, talked about some of the opening statements that Paul makes. This morning we get into the body of the letter. And as we begin that, I am, I am just excited about the, the different ways that the same passage of Scripture can be used. You know, the Word of God is full of life and full of meaning for every person in whatever stage of life you're in. Uh, and you can read the same passage, and, and it will probably happen here this morning, as we read this passage together and begin to study it, each one of you walked in the door with some need or burden or situation in your life, and God is going to speak to you during this service in one way or another. could have already done that through the music or through some times of prayer. But you will all have a little different takeaway. Even though I'm going to be saying the same sermon to everyone, and we're looking at the same verses of Scripture, there's, there's going to be a little different application that the Holy Spirit tunes for your life. And that's one of the, the neat things about it. Because as we start this letter, we're going to uh, learn how Paul went about discipling and nurturing believers. And if you're a discipler of people, if you're uh, growing in the Lord and you're down the pathway and you're a discipler of people, there is a message throughout this letter of how Paul went about nurturing and encouraging and discipling and working with people who were growing in Christ. If you're a new believer and uh, you need to grow, that message is in here because it's a part of this letter. Paul is writing to a young church, and he is helping them to clarify the particulars of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And finally, if, if you've been on the road for a while, or maybe you're new in the Lord, but all of a sudden there are competing ideas that are coming at you, and you're beginning to wonder, well, wait a minute... What is Christianity all about? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? What is the right kind of thinking? You know, it's disturbing that George Barna keeps taking these surveys of Christians and he keeps turning up the reality that most of the church doesn't know any more than the world. In fact, most of the church doesn't think any differently from the world because there is not a crystal clear understanding of what really it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I could call that a biblical worldview, but really what it boils down to is to have Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and be a follower of Him. What does that mean? What does that look like? And that's exactly what Paul is getting at in the letter to the Colossians as he begins to address some of the problems that they're encountering as a young church being conflicted by opposing ideas. So follow with me in your Bibles. First Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, as I read this first paragraph. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you 
just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it, and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow uh, beloved fellow bond servant who is a faithful follower and servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, I have to admit to you that I was uh, a little, I was wrestling with uh, putting this, uh, this message together because I was tempted to just park in verse 3 this morning. Um, there, there's a little bit of a, a, it could almost make the first point the whole message uh, and then the rest of it another time. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to pack it all together this morning. But one of the things that stands out to me right out of the gate as I look at the Apostle Paul and how he dealt with the churches, I look at his prayer life. I look at the way that he prayed. And he opens his letter not just with words, oh, this is how you start a letter, but he opens his letter with sincerity and truth. This is what we've been doing. And he says, we give thanks to God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And when I look at that sentence, there are some things that just leap off the page at me. The first thing is, is he begins with the pronoun we. Not just I, but we. Now, we know that Paul is writing this letter with Timothy. He's not by himself, and so he certainly includes Timothy. But more than that, we learn from this letter as we read it that there are other people with him in Rome. Paul is in prison in Rome, but he's under house arrest and he can have guests. And with him are Tychicus and Aristarchus and Mark, who is the cousin of Barnabas, and Justice, whose actual given name is Jesus, but maybe he had a nickname Justice, or maybe he felt a little odd having the name Jesus after Jesus, and so he changed it to a nickname, we don't know. There's Epaphras there, who is actually the, 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 the chief shepherd, the pastor, the, the senior pastor, if you please, of the church at Colossae, and also of Hierapolis and Laodicea that we studied about a couple weeks ago. Epaphras is there. Luke is there, the beloved physician, Dr. Luke. And Demas is there. So there's at least nine people who are with Paul, either as guests or one of them is his fellow prisoner. They're with Paul under this house arrest in Rome. And uh, Paul is not ashamed to pray. Uh, I was reminded again in reading the book of Acts when Paul was arrested and put in jail in Philippi, you know, he and Silas were praising God and praying and singing in the jail, and the scripture says that everyone heard them. And then that earthquake happened and there was a great turnaround and some powerful things occurred. But Paul was a prayer, and he was not just one who had a personal prayer life, he had a corporate prayer life. He prayed together with people. Can you imagine being that Roman guard that was chained to him? You know, I mean, that's what happened house arrest. They assigned a guard to, to, to watch you day and night, and you were cuffed together, the guard to you. They didn't cuff the prisoner. They cuffed the guard to the prisoner. And so you're chained together, and here's uh, 
Changing of the guards, you know, there they are, praying again. I mean, I just, I, sometimes I wonder and kind of look at it from another viewpoint. What would it have been like to be the Roman guard? Every time we turn around, these guys are praying. You know, I've spent half my life with my eyes closed. Well, I don't know. I don't even know if they pray that way. But uh, we, we sort of do. But, but there was prayer meetings all the time. They were meeting together to pray, and among that, they were praying for the church at Colossae. And I want us to recognize that prayer is a predominant function of the Christian life. Not only our personal prayer, but our corporate prayer. Because Jesus said, when two or more of you have come together in agreement in prayer... I'm in your midst, and I will do the thing that you ask. Now, a lot of people misunderstand that. And that does not mean that a couple of us can get together in collusion and say, let's see, what do we want this week? I'd like a new car. Okay, we'll all agree, this week Paul gets a car. Next week, uh, Paul gets a new wardrobe. Uh, next week, uh, you know, somebody else gets a new house. I mean, well, let, let's just that's not what he's talking about at all. What he is saying is when believing people who are praying people get together and the Holy Spirit of God is working in their lives as they are praying and there is an agreement among them of integrity arising out of that prayer life where all of a sudden they find that they're wanting the same thing to happen. There's agreement in their spirit. That that is the direction of the Holy Spirit. That is His guidance among them. That as they are being burdened in a similar fashion, and they are being moved to pray for the same thing, that when they agree on that, God is in the midst of it, and God takes action. When you come together in prayer, and we pray corporately, Powerful things happen. In fact, let me go so far as to say that the only thing we can do to effect change in the kingdom, the advance of the kingdom and transformation of the lives of individuals, the only thing that we can do is pray. Everything else is what God does. We do not have the power to change a life. We do not have the power to save a soul. We do not have the power to plant a church. We do not have the power to heal. That's not our power. That's His power. He is the one that holds all the power. What we have is the capacity to pray. And God has chosen in a, in a mysterious way that I confess I don't, don't understand, but God has chosen to partner with us. So that what he wants to do is dependent upon the cooperative effort of his believers to ask him for. Prayer is not the business of getting what I want accomplished on the, on the earth. It's a matter of getting what God wants accomplished. Jesus said when he taught them how to pray, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Your purposes be accomplished on earth. Just as they are in heaven. 
Because on this planet, God has invested in the church the authority and the privilege of prayer. And He has chosen, let me say this very reverently and respectfully, but I believe I can back it in Scripture, He has chosen to limit Himself to what the church will ask for. He calls us to prayer. Jesus said in John chapter 15, seven different times, He says, whatever you ask in My name, that will I accomplish. But He said, when you pray and you believe and you ask in My name, if My Word abides in you and you abide in Me, and you pray in that way in My name, I will, My Father in Heaven will answer that you can bear fruit. In other words, that change will be affected, that work will happen, that lives will be changed, that people will be healed, that the church will be established. Everything in the kingdom rises or falls on prayer. And so, when Paul begins this letter, he says, we give thanks to God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. We together, collectively, are praying for you. And notice the second words out of his mouth. He says, we give thanks. We give thanks. Again, it is amazing how many times in Scripture, praying is coupled with thanksgiving. When you look at that, don't worry about anything, Paul says to the Philippians in, in Philippians 4. 6 and 7, don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he says, in everything give thanks. Pray without ceasing. Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. But in every situation, the asking is also cast in a framework of gratitude. We took some time this morning, a little more than usual, to, to hear testimonies of what God is doing around the congregation because I wanted us to hear what is God doing in our midst. We need to stop and reckon with what God has done. We need to give thanks. Friends, sometimes, I don't know about you, but my personality is such that Sometimes I get melancholy, a little blue, you know, wake up and the world looks like it's in shades of gray. I think it's just kind of my temperament. Maybe I'm wired a bit that way. And um, sometimes I can, I can see the negatives in a lot of things. And I need correction. I need perspective. I, I need it to, to come together back in focus. And one of the greatest ways to do that is before you start asking, to start thanking. To, to come into the presence of God and say, God, I'm thankful for this, and this, and this, and this. All of a sudden you begin to list all the things that God has done, and perspective comes. You know, uh, when the Israelites were crossing the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land, Joshua said to them, Go back down there and take 12 rocks out of there, one for every tribe of Israel, and pile up on this side of the Jordan. Because the Jordan had been parted, and they were able to cross it uh, at flood time on the dry ground. 
and he said, build this, build this mound of rocks. Okay? And, uh, and he said to them, when your children are passing this way, and they say, why is there a pile of rocks there? You are to say to them, because the Lord our God parted the waters of this Jordan and brought us into this land of blessing. This is to be a constant reminder to you of what God has done. Because, friends, not every day is going to be a glorious day of victory. Some days are going to be tough. Some days all the news is going to be bad. Life just happens like that. Some days things are going to go wrong. And we need to stop and remember. We need to look at the pile of rocks and be reminded of what God has done, and that He's on the throne, and that He's going to continue His work. He's not dead. He's not gone on a trip. He's not closed His ears. And Paul says, when we come together to pray, we give thanks. We praise God for what's happened in your lives. And that's important strategically here because... There's some serious problems in this church. They're about to get sidetracked from the pure message of the gospel. They're about to lose sight of who Jesus is. And there's cause for concern. But Paul begins by saying, here's what we're thankful for. Are you getting the applications? Because this is, we can transfer this to our lives. Personal prayer, corporate prayer, thanksgiving. Did you write those things down? You know, you got them. They're in your notes. Okay. And then he says, and, and I want to focus here for a second, praying always for you. You know, in the New Testament, in the Greek language that it was originally written in, there are about five different words for prayer. And you look through, uh, you can go to 1 Timothy chapter Two, for example, and Paul says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands to God without wrath and doubting. Pray for us. Pray for all that are in authority. Yada, 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 yada. Look at that. He uses almost all of the different words for prayer in that passage. I quote, supplication. There's different words for prayer there. There are at least five different words for prayer in the New Testament. They each have a little bit of, bit of uh, different nuance of meaning. In fact, in verse 9 of Colossians, do not cease to pray for you and to ask. Two different words for prayer right there. Praying and asking. Asking has a specific kind of uh, uh, nuance to its meaning. But when I what the original language word is for prayer in verse 3, you will immediately recognize it. Prosuke. Prosecute. Prosuke. Prosecute. You see how it sounds almost the same? And it, it, it's the general word for prayer, but it's not a word that is casualness. Paul says we are always praying. There, there's a constancy there. And the concept to me and the root of that word of the prosecutor presenting see God, the Almighty Judge, sitting on the bench. 
the church, they're hurting, and you are you are marshalling the for your client, for the state's client, this church that is under fire. And you are bringing the evidence, and you are along the case before Him, and you are asking for action, and for justice, and for intervention, asking for relief. That's what the state's attorney does. They defend the people. And here you are, the prosecutor, in intercession, defending the church, praying for the church in the bar of justice in the court of heaven. And you're beseeching God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to take action and get involved and make some decisions and cause things to happen. Deal with that rascal over there that's affecting the church. This is not casual prayer, friends. This is thoughtful. It's perceptive. It's analytical. Paul has thought about the problem. They have considered the, the difficulties. They are bringing measured arguments to the Lord. Remember Abraham's prayer over um, Lot and his family in Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's this exchange that goes back and forth. Uh, will you spare the city if there's 50 righteous? And God says, well, yes, I'll spare the city if there's 50. Well, okay, will you spare the city if there's only 30 righteous? Well, Yes, I'll spare the city if there's... Well, will you spare the city if there's only ten? And there's this mediation going back and forth, and here is this wrestling in prayer. But God is a faithful partner in the process, and the Lord Jesus Christ makes intercession for us, and the Holy Spirit helps us even when we don't know what to say. And we have all of this assistance from the Holy Trinity to, to help us in our praying as we marshal the cause on behalf of others. Do you pray like that? Do you come before God with well thought out requests and reasoned arguments and lay your case before Him? You say, man, that sounds like an affront to God. That's pretty bold. Well, the Scripture says, come boldly before the throne of grace. Because when you come thoughtfully and prayerfully like that, God will refine your thinking. As you begin to pray, He will fine-tune. He will show you how to home in on the problem. He will key you in. Because you're on His side and He's on your side. You're together and this is how the work is done here. It's done through prayer. And I really just want to focus this morning. I want your takeaway to be prayer is the number one thing. It was Armin Gesswein, the great prayer warrior, who said, you cannot do anything until you have prayed. After you have prayed, there is nothing you cannot do. And that is absolutely true. There is nothing the church can do until it prays. Once we have prayed, there is nothing impossible for our God. When we have laid hold of His mind and purposes, 
He will do in and through us that which He desires. I challenge you back in December to pick ten people in your life that did not live in your household, but that were in your life regularly on a, on a weekly basis, to pick ten people to begin to pray for them. I told you there was two things true about them, one of two things. They're either uh, saved because they know the Lord Jesus Christ, or they're not. If they're not, they need to be. If they know Him, they need to grow. Begin to pray for those ten people and see... At 8 o'clock service, we had several people give testimony of the work God is already doing in the lives of those ten people. One minute a day, ten people, ten minutes a day to change the world you live in. You're salt and light. Prayer makes the difference. I believe God wants to do things in this town, in this community, this year. But they will go undone until we have asked Him for them, until we have spent time in His presence, until we have sought Him personally and corporately to do that. Friends, there's nothing more important than prayer. You know, I know that you're all busy. I know your lives are filled with so many things. I, I, I know that, that many of you work long hours, don't even get home till 7 or 7.30. I know all those things are true. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Small group, Wednesday night, whenever. Get together, not only in your personal lives, but get together with the believers in this body and pray. Pray together. Pray with intelligence. Pray with perseverance. Pray with carefully reasoned arguments. Seek God. Paul says that's what we're doing for you. We're giving thanks and we are praying. We have been praying always for you. That doesn't mean that he prays every minute of every hour of every day. It could simply mean that every time we pray, we remember Colossae. But Paul is the one who says, pray without ceasing. And so there is in him an urgency of a priority of importance that prayer is the focus. And the reason that he is giving thanks, as we learn and we go on in these verses, we give thanks to God the Father. We have not forgotten to pray for you always. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth. Do you recognize in those verses a common trilogy of things? There are three things that stand out in these verses that we find repeatedly used throughout Scripture. Love, faith, and hope. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, that we call the love chapter, when we get to the end of the chapter, Paul says, now abide these three things, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Because one day, faith will be sight. We won't need faith anymore. We'll see the reality of what we have believed. And we won't need hope anymore because we'll, well, we'll be living it. It'll be our present reality. But love will always abide and remain because that's been God's heart from the beginning that we dwell together in love in His presence. That's been what He has longed for. But these three things are right here. Now, I want to ask you to fix your outline because I don't know what happened to me on Friday. Uh, I had a wonderful week, but Friday afternoon was not a part of it. And I don't know where my brain was because I came up with this goofy title, The Three Results of Being a Christian, or The Three Essentials for Being a Christian. 
And, and it's just bad theology. So I want you to fix your outline. I have a new title for you this morning that's more theologically accurate. The three results of being a Christian. The other one kind of sounds like the ingredients you have to pour in to get Christianity out, and that's not the way it works. The three results of being a Christian, because there are things that happen when we are followers of Jesus Christ. They become true of us. Notice how Paul phrases it here in these verses. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come uh, to, to you just as in all the world, constantly bearing fruit, increasing as it has been doing in you since the day you, you heard of it, and understood the grace of God in truth. What he's saying is that one day, Epaphras, very likely, or perhaps others, came to Colossae and proclaimed the gospel message, the word of truth. And all of a sudden, their eyes were opened to the hope that the gospel brings us. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn quickly over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse, verse 14. In Hebrews 2.14, the writer of Hebrews says this, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is, Jesus likewise, also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I've mentioned this before recently, and we've looked at the passages in the Gospel where the, the Isaiah 9 is quoted at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. And those who lived in the edge of the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Do you know the one thing that binds human beings in fear and motivates their lives in ways that they don't even realize is the fear of death. At the bottom of every situation is a fear of death in one way or another. Some people try to become immune to it by never thinking about it. Others try to anesthetize themselves so that they don't have to uh, struggle with the cares of life and the fears that it brings. Ever since the movie came out, people have been building their bucket list, you know, and that simply means i got to pack this in before I kick off, you know, I I need to get this in. Um, The fear of death actually keeps human beings around the world in bondage. Because people realize, every person realizes when they stop and think about it, and I may be making you uncomfortable right now, that one day we're going to die. One day we're all going to die. We may be healed for the moment. We may go through things and get deliverance. Amazing things may happen. 
We may live well into our 90s. But one day, if Jesus tarries, we're all going to die. And everybody in the world really knows that deep down. We recognize that we're mortal. Some people are so aware of it, they avoid everything that reminds them of death. They never go to funerals. They never go to memorial services. They, they don't want to see people. I have a neighbor who's been given the, the news that his cancer is not healable and he only has a short while to live. And another neighbor says, I'm going to treat him like I'd want to be treated. I don't want anybody to come see me. I want him to leave me alone. I'm not going to see him. And I thought, that's sad. Really, he's afraid of his own death. And therefore, he's not able to visit with a neighbor who is struggling with the imminence of his own mortality. And people who recognize their mortality recognize that one of two things is true. Either there's nothing beyond the grave, in which case they cease to exist, and everything that they've known and loved and valued and had meaning just stops. And they just become dust. Or, there is something after death, and that something could be judgment. And, and, and what if they don't pass the judgment? What if they don't live up? You see, this fear controls the lives of every human being until they hear and understand the good news of the gospel. And it has been said that you can never really live until you're no longer afraid to die. It's hard to embrace life in all of its fullness unless you're not concerned about the consequence. And I'm not talking about being reckless or foolish. But to really live means you have to not fear death. In fact, Jesus said in that very marvelous conversation with Mary and Martha, if you live and believe in me, you will never die. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me shall never die. That means that if we understand the message of the gospel, even though there will come a moment when this body stops, I will never stop. And I, the, the one I know, Paul Martin, in my spirit, with my mind and my emotions and my will and my personality, I who recognize myself, I will go into the immediate presence of God and I will never die. I once explained at a funeral, and I've done it several times since, that death for the believer is like anyone who comes in in the cold winter out of the cold into their home and the warmth of family and peels off their How many of you stop being when you do that? How many of you are even aware that you've done it? It's a transition. You were talking when you walked in the door, probably, hi, hun, or hi, whoever, or whatever, and you take the coat off and you keep right on talking, and you don't hardly know that anything has happened. You just peeled the outer layer. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ will never die. They just peel the outer layer. 
And one day, God will resurrect that in glory. Not only that, there's forgiveness of sin. We don't have to worry about the judgment. And furthermore, the truth of the gospel is the thing that makes sense out of the world. We're on this planet and it doesn't make sense. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there uh, all kinds of wars and trouble in the world? Why are there tornadoes and monsoons and typhoons? Why are the politicians all crazy? Why is the world at loggerheads country with country? Why are we in such turmoil? What is wrong with crime in the streets? Why is this place so messed up? And then we look in the mirror and we say, why am I so messed up? I'm part of the problem. I'm not part of the solution. But when we hear the Gospel, it makes sense. We understand how we were made. We understand what went went wrong. We understand how God can fix it. We understand how we can be changed. We, We understand how we can lose the fear of death. We understand how we can come into relationship with God. Our whole lives are transformed. Paul says, since the day we heard of your your faith and love that arose out of your hope, The day that you heard the gospel and understood the meaning and you embraced it by faith. You see, we hear the hope. Our eyes are open. Uh, We respond to the gospel message. We say, yes, I've needed this. Lord, forgive my sin. Cleanse my life. Transform my being. And all of life begins to make sense. He is the explanation of it all. And out of that comes faith. Faith not in church. Faith not in a book. As much as I respect and trust this book to be the inerrant and infallible Word of God, it's not my faith in a book that saves me. It's not my faith in a church that saves me. It's not because I got baptized or joined something. or It's because of Jesus. Our faith and hope is in a person. Read what he says. Since the day we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Because He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the source of life and hope. He is the one who makes the difference. And so our faith is planted in a person whom we shall see shortly in this letter is God Himself in human flesh. Risen and glorified, sitting at the right hand of God, waiting for His bride, the church, to all come together through the ages. But we put our faith in Him. And as a consequence of that, our lives are transformed and characterized by love, which we have for one another. All of a sudden we realize we're in a family. Friends, we're on a journey together. Look around at the people around you. Now, just think for a moment. Most of the people in this room, as far as I know, know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. You're going to be with them forever. Get used to it. You're not ever going to say goodbye. You're going to be with these people forever. Because they're your brothers and sisters. And we're all going to meet after the journey has ended in this life. We're all going to meet.
at the great seat of God before the throne. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, the redeemed of the Lord out of all the places of the earth. And we're going to be with the Lord Jesus and each other. And John writes to his dear ones, probably in Ephesus, when he writes his first letter, and he says this, This is how we know that we have passed from death into life, because we love each other. We love the brothers. This is how we know. And if anyone does not love his brother whom he has seen, How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the proof that we love God, that we have love for one another. You see, there is evidence. That's why I want you to fix the title, the results of being a Christian. There is evidence that you can see. And if you say, oh, I love the Lord, but man, I can't stand. Dan, the church, oh, what a bunch of losers. Man, those people tick me off. You better check out your faith. Because if you love the Lord, there's a love for His people. You know? I don't want to live my life and have regrets at the end. One of the things I've tried to do in the last few years is be more intentional and more purposeful. And I want you to know I love you. I really do. I think about you. Your faces pass before my mind. And I think about who you are and your personality and I hear your voice. I can pick most of your voices out. And I know your good points, and I know some of your quirks and weirdness. And you know some of mine. But I love you. Because God has put that love in my heart. And we know that we know Him because we love. Do you love the people around you? And so let me ask you this morning as we close. How's your prayer life? We started there. Let's come back. How's your prayer life? If life isn't working for you, even though you're a follower of Jesus Christ, how much time are you spending with Him to get His counsel, His guidance, to ask Him for what you need? You don't have because you don't ask, James says. Then you do ask, and you ask with the wrong motives and mess it all up. But but just start. Just start by praying. Just, Just start. How's your corporate prayer life? Are you involved with other people in praying? Paul says, we pray for you. Is the evidence there that you really know the Lord? I'm not trying to be mean. The biggest disaster that could ever happen is that you would sit under the sound of this kind of message and walk out of here and not be born again. Is the evidence there? Do you have faith? Do you have hope? Now, hope is not wishful thinking. In the Scripture, hope is conviction and confidence. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that He is able to keep what I have committed to Him against that day. I'm positive 
Do you know for sure that you're going to spend eternity in the presence of God? Do you know for sure that you're born again? Do you know that you're on your way to heaven? You can. It's a steadfast hope. Faith. Love. Is it obvious in your life? And has the word of truth, the gospel message, come to you with such clarity that it has made sense out of life? Because that's what it does. When you understand the whole message of Scripture rightly, the world makes sense. I didn't say the world was fixed. But it makes sense even in its brokenness. And Jesus as the Redeemer, Savior, Healer, Coming King makes sense. And we embrace Him. Our hope is in Him. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts. Search us, O God, and try us and see if there's faith, if there's confidence, if there's love. Lord, examine us in terms of our prayer life and make us willing to be obedient to you. Change us, O God, according to your purposes. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.